Hello, and welcome to Cannabis Unlocked. In this episode, Matt Balaker, host of the Matt Balaker Podcast, sit down with me, Jordan Euclid, founding partner at Key Investment Partners. In this conversation, we discuss the early days of cannabis investing and the need for personal connection. The conversation begins with Matt's journey into cannabis in 2012 and what the earliest days of cannabis culture and investing looked like right as adult use legislation was being passed. From there, Matt and I speak to the historical injustices around cannabis and discuss how success in cannabis is not solely based on increased revenue, but also increased opportunities for those that have been disproportionately affected by cannabis's history. The talk continues by diving into the creation of Matt's podcast, The Matt Balaker Podcast, which covers a range of investing topics, including cannabis. This episode concludes with a conversation around Matt's passion for stand-up comedy and everyone's need for personal connection and interaction. Please enjoy. and welcome to the latest episode of Cannabis Unlocked. Today, I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, founding partner of Key Investment Partners, and I am very excited to be joined by my friend, Matt Balaker. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Matt uh, is uh, also the host of his own podcast, which I've uh, been fortunate enough to uh, make a couple appearances on. So excited to return the favor and uh, talk a little bit about uh, your background and uh, how you got involved in the cannabis industry. Well, I'm I'm honored, and and I, th- I think to be clear to listeners out there, Jordan, you're the first repeat guest on the Matt Balaker podcast. So that I mean, like for every two appearances you make, I get at least one. So I think that's the tip for <laughs> that we're playing. Um, no, uh, you've you've been uh, very generous with your time, and uh, I got into the cannabis industry uh, in 2012 when I uh, I had a lo- I was running a small hedge fund and I had a string of probably about two maybe three years of strong returns. So therefore, I knew everything, and it was time for me to uh, become a leader, or so I thought, in cannabis. <laughs> in the uh, in the uh, mature days of 2012, right? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, I was in my early 30s, I guess. So um, I knew everything, as I said, you know. And I I, I was managed a fund, and it was kind of sad how it ended. the uh, The gentleman who launched it, his wife had terminal cancer, and so it was for very good reasons we stopped you know, making investments in public companies. But it was around that time, uh, I was about to be a father, kind of bored, you know, with a lot of traditional financial work. And I um, I got in touch with Justin Hartfield, who was the uh, the founder of Weed Maps. Mm. Um, and I because I'd been running a fund, there was some talk that they might launch a cannabis fund. And I was totally unqualified for it. I thought I was. Jordan, uh, you know, but um, I met with him and, and we, were, we kind of became friends. They never launched the fund. He was too busy making gobs of money on his regular business. Um, but that that's kind of what uh, got me into the cannabis as an investor. Got it. Yeah. So talk to me about what those early days uh, of investing in the cannabis industry were like. It was the Wild West. I mean, we, we say it's the Wild West now, Jordan, but I mean, this was the time I, Colorado had just gone legal. Uh-huh. Um, uh, uh, Oregon as, as well, I, th- I think. So 
Although it is, I grew up in California. So, you know, in 1996, uh, medical, medical cannabis was, was legal. So to me, it had seemed like a long time, but there were a few dominant players. It was in a way, in some ways easier, <laughs> you know, I mean, like everything was medical in California. So there were fewer hoops, I think, to go, you know, you, you could get product more easily. Uh, I mean, you had to be a patient. Uh, I think there was a lot of camaraderie, which there still is. But it was it was really fun. And and there was so much exuberance. Um, but also it was like, uh, you know, like I'm a father. So it was kind of like when my kids were like two years old, you know, they're slowly starting to walk. But, you know, you know, still, you know, dirtying their diapers all the time, painting, you know, like just doing kind of like infantile stuff because it's not it wasn't really a mature industry. So it was kind of like the the terrible twos of cannabis. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so then how did your role and responsibility in the industry develop as the industry matured? Well, um, I've still not matured and my responsibility is is, is slightly grown. I, I, I think what, you know, now I'll be, I'll be dead honest. I, it forced me, Jordan, to actually learn the business. I thought because I knew a little bit about several industries working in hedge funds for about 10 years that I could just quickly apply that knowledge to cannabis. Mm-hmm. And, and there are some carryover. I mean, if you can read a balance sheet for a biotech company, you can read a balance sheet for a cannabis company. But I had no idea how fragmented the industry was. And I just really didn't know it. You know, I, I, around that time, I got my own rec card. I was unfortunately kind of a product of the, the D.A.R.E. generation. Mm-hmm. And so for worse, I, I, I really kind of shied away from cannabis recreationally when I was younger. That changed when I you know, when I became a parent and I, I wanted to sleep and I didn't want to take any over-the-counter stuff. I, I always had kind of chronic sleep problems. So this is a long-winded way of saying I needed to kind of understand it at the consumer and social level long before I could understand it from the business level. Mm-hmm. Got it. That makes sense. So how did you start to get to know it from the consumer and social level. <laughs> well, I got a card, a red card, and uh, it was surprisingly easy. You know, I mean, I, I, and I was honest. I said I had insomnia. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think they really cared. I, I, I could have said, you know, I'm missing an arm and they would have written me a <laughs> a card, I think. But it, it like, it had made me appreciate the lack of hangovers and and kind of like a lot of the the problems that and and, and I, I still drink alcohol. Don't get me wrong, but I, and I'm going to do what I don't like, Jordan. When I I vilify alcohol to bring up cannabis, I, I think as adults, people should be able to choose to do whatever you know, put whatever they want in their bodies. Sure. But you know, when I was in college, I, I wasn't like a booze hound, but you know, sometimes I got hungover and I'd throw up. That never happened with cannabis, and especially because I was a dad, I, I wanted to just quickly be able to fall asleep and wake up and feel good because yeah. I, I, I had a baby to raise and my wife was working and I was at home and I was still working, but I had a little more flexibility. So it, it made me appreciate kind of the the lack of real serious side effects. And I'm, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, so if someone's out there, I'm sure there are side, some, some some side effects. But compared to like a young man in your 20s, I, I made me think like, gosh, if more people substituted cannabis for other drugs. Uh, we, we'd live in a lot more peaceful world. And that sounds hokey, but I, I, I believe it to, to my core. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you know, you don't see people getting high and starting bar fights and getting violent with their spouses and their kids. No. And that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, fast forward several years, I, I was at a, um, I think it was an Orange County commerce meeting. 
and they had a, a gentleman from the police department. And in, in some ways, Orange County was ahead of the curve with legal cannabis in many ways. And this is California, not Florida. Uh, it's way behind. Like it was hyper fragmented in terms of one city can have a dispensary. <laughs> and even though 90% of the citizens want it because the city council says no, it's no. So it was kind of, it was, this was a big time. You know, it, it was a, it was an opportunity for business people to meet with with you know city administrators i don't want to call them leaders i call them administrators because i think that's what they are um and, and someone one of the administrators mentioned that in the last call it three years they had 50 calls for domestic violence related to uh, alcohol and drug and other drugs and, and I'm, I'm not i don't know if it was exactly 50 but it was a big number during that same time there were zero calls uh, for cannabis-related domestic violence incidences, and and I, I I I was just like, oh my god, like I was already converted, but from from just like a um, crime mitigation standpoint, um, I was like, what more evidence? Do you need? I mean, I, I mean that's kind of anecdotal, but I'm just like, good god, like like that yeah. that that was kind of a light bulb moment where I was like proud to be on the side of legal cannabis. That that more so than any business stuff. I mean, if, if if we can stop people from hurting one another, let's do it. <laughs> like, let's right. get me on that team. Totally. And it gets into, you know, some of the stuff we've talked about on your podcast before, just around why was cannabis made illegal in the first place, right? It had nothing to do with the pharmacological effects of the drug or its potential for addiction, right? It all had to do with political agendas and, and you know, helping to um, direct which which mind-altering substances, you know, we have control over versus which are pushed to the black markets in a sense. Yeah. And, and, and I like that you mentioned, you know, pushing things to the black market because, you know, people like to alter their consciousness, you know, and, and we can talk all day like you should or shouldn't. And, and there might be arguments for certain people why they shouldn't. I'm, I'm not I'm not here to dispute that. What I am here to say is people have been getting high long before I was alive. They're going to be getting high for millennia after I pass on. And we have to decide, do we want it to be in the light or do we want it to be in the illicit market? Because it's not going away. It's not as if we make something illegal. People aren't going to use it. It's like, what is the best way, while imperfect, to handle this demand that will always be here? Right. I think you're spot on with that. And also not just getting high, getting drunk too. And I, th I think there's a, even like a, a debate amongst archaeologists around which was the first crop that was cultivated, right? Was it, was it wheat or was it beer? But, uh, but I mean, the fact that- <laughs> And, and did wheat exist for beer? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like to uh, expect that, you know, humans uh, are not, are going to stop experimenting with altering their consciousness, right? And then it gets into the whole idea of where do you draw that line, right? Because sugar certainly has a lot of mm -hmm. pharmacological effects. And I would argue that's much more poisonous than cannabis is. So, you know, it just kind of, uh, I think it just the whole dialogue around what is drug, what is medicine, what is food? I think we need to really think through that, have a real kind of come to Jesus moment as a, yes. as a society. hundred percent. And, and I, and, and I know you're, you're humble, but you've been a major leader on this and, and, and you've, you've changed my mind, you know, in, in that, like, I think I was maybe a little bit more skeptical uh, or maybe more trusting of, of kind of science. And, and I'm not to say like, I'm anti-science. I, I think like anything, any human construct, 
it's it has its biases it's it's formed by people and people are imperfect uh even ones that work at key investment partner even though they're the closest you know <laughs> um but but it's like we we put such trust in these labels like what is food what is drug what you know, what is a controlled substance and 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 i i think it, the lines are actually blurrier and it was harder for me to accept that because in a way it's just easier if you have these simple categorizations but you've been a leader and and, and your your whole team has been a leader and and kind of changing the landscape of that and, and and you're you're doing it with your what you put out there socially but also with with your 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 investments and i i think kind of partnering the two like if you can marry something you're passionate about with something that you can hopefully make a living on it's yes. going to be a very fulfilling existence well i appreciate that matt and you know we definitely try to try to push the ball forward not just on the you know economic side of the industry but also on the restorative justice and it's it's a challenge right i mean you think about the landscape of what makes an investment a successful venture right it's mm -hmm. you know it's do you have significant barriers to entry do you have scale do you have a management team that's been successful in the past do you have a clear exit pathway likely to a consolidator you know from outside the cannabis industry right and it's like all those traits i've listed are not opportunities that are going to be presented to someone, for example, who's been incarcerated for the last several decades due to cannabis. Right, right. You know what I mean? And it sounds so obvious, but it's it's true. And so it's like, it's hard enough, even if you have all those things I just mentioned to make a successful cannabis business, let alone if you have no financial acumen or, or you know, higher education. So it's a real problem. And, and I think it gets to really, frankly, the structure of the entire economic system. And, and I think the, the problem is that, you know, we've been sold this bill of free market capitalism, but I think we need to recognize that, A, that's not what we have, and B, <laughs> even if that were, you know, is operating a business solely for the maximization of your shareholder earnings, is that really the best way to run a society, right? Is this mindset of we have to just continue to grow and grow and grow? Is that wh why? Why can't we get to a place of where your company is at an equilibrium? You're making a healthy profit for your owners and your employees, and you're supplying the appropriate amount of demand. Why does there always need to be this constant growth and consumerism? Yeah, I, I mean, it's uh, I, I can't show you, but I have a book uh, by probably my favorite economist, Milton Friedman. So in many ways, I'm a proud free market capitalist. And and I but I agree with what you said. We're not in a free market. Uh, I'd like to see one someday. Uh, you know, maybe theoretically, like it would, it would it would be kind of interesting, but we are far from it. I, I mean, I think we have a freer market than many industrialized right. countries, but it's still there's still elements of command and control. There's cronyism. There's corporatism, meaning that, like, I'll look at someone like Amazon, which 15 years ago was kind of a darling of the tech world. And, and, and I'm a big Amazon consumer. I have no, like, philosophical issue with them. But when I see them advocating strongly for, like, very high minimum wage laws or very, uh, you know, strict hiring practices, I'm kind of like, well, is that what you want in your soul? Or is it are you closing the door to the next Amazon because they don't have the financial resources you do? And I, and I think what uh, it's a long-winded way of saying, Jordan, like cannabis companies are at such a disadvantage. And, and like you're talking about growth 
and, and meeting healthy profits. I just want to see profits at this point, you know, and then, then we can kind of nitpick over like, what is the optimal amount of profit? And, and, and I think the goal of, of, you know, a lot of businesses is to, you know, you want to stay in business, but you want to do so in a way where you're going to come back to work the next morning. And I, and I think with cannabis operators, there's a huge social component to that. And I don't want that to change. Like I want people to uh, have a purpose beyond the bottom line. And, and I think once you do that, the bottom line will take care of itself. But like you, you've alluded to this in, in work you've done, you know, cannabis is, is it's, it's, there, there's so many, um, barriers that other industries don't have that I can't wait till it's, uh, you know, on par with wheat, for instance, or, or grains or, you know, like paper clips. I don't, n- n- name an industry. I just, I, I, I can't wait till it's more on equal footing with that. I agree. I agree. And I think eh, once 280E is gone, that'll help a lot, right? I, I think that has been such a burden to these folks. It's just made it, you know, nearly impossible to to be profitable, even if you are a really excellent operator. So, you know, right. I hope that um, our government, you know, starts to recognize how big of an issue it is. It's like, you can't have your foot in both doors, right? No. And, and they listen to this podcast. I mean, probably more so than mine. So like, you know, just do what we're do what we're suggesting, government. Please, <laughs> your your constituents will be better off. I promise, Mr. McConnell. You heard yes, <laughs> take notes, take notes, Mitch. Uh, so, Matt, how has uh, your involvement over the last couple of years in the industry evolved? And you know, tell me about uh, how you decided to start the Matt Balaker podcast. Okay, yeah, they, they're they're kind of related. Um, uh, over the last few years, I. Um, I made some investments. Um, you know, I've had a lot more profitable returns than, than my recent cannabis investments, but I'm a firm believer you learn more from losses than you do gains. So I've learned a lot, Jordan. Um, and I have friends who uh, were, were involved in a distribution company and I helped them um, kind of build up, build up what they're doing. And then uh, fast forward a couple years, um, I, I joined a, a group at, at um, Orient Capital Partners that helps um, companies raise money, and they had a big presence in cannabis. And I think that was the reason I, I joined them. And then you asked about the podcast. Well, during that time when I was kind of looking to invest, you know, inevitably you make friends and then you kind of lend your expertise to them. Um, I met a lot of cool people. I think that's that's how I, I met you and Pete. And since then, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've met Tibby. And so I had this large Rolodex of cannabis operators, cannabis experts. I also, I, oh, I can't believe I forgot this. I, I worked for a consulting firm that helped people staff CFOs and, uh-huh. and controllers. So it was very like um, kind of brass tacks when it comes to business. And I, I, I had this um, group of people that I was like, they, they need a story. You know, they, I want to build a platform for them. Uh, so it's not cannabis exclusive, but I'd say, 30 to 40% of the content is from, you know, cannabis industry folks. That makes sense. And what's the, what's the other content focus on? Uh, well, we, uh, the, the tagline is we interview leaders in uh, business comedy and publishing in hopes of free writing off their expertise. So when I, when I wasn't, uh, you know, pushing paper around for investments, I, I, I have a passion and I, I've been involved in stand-up comedy for about 20 years as a performer, as a producer, uh, you know, kind of, kind of how, in almost, almost any capacity I, I, yeah. I've done it. So um, I didn't want to compete with like the Joe Rogans and the, the Tom Segura's of the world who had just like a, a, a comedy focused 
podcast. I also had this background in finance, which gosh, for years, I would kind of purposely hide one from the other. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of wouldn't highlight it to my comedy friends. And then in finance, I thought like, oh, if people realize I, I did stand up, like my career would be over. Like it was, it was stupid. And then it, it kind of, um, when I got into cannabis investing, I felt like, all right, I can be more myself. Uh-huh. And now I feel like, all right, I have a pretty unique, I don't want to call it necessarily skill set, but, but a unique uh, contact base where I can talk to someone who like, like recently uh, the guy who was on America's Got Talent and he was roasting Simon Cowell. And then, uh, you know, a week before that, I'm talking with you about, you know, revisiting the war on drugs. And uh, it, it's something that I think is unique because it's, it's what I know. Yeah. And I've, I've learned it's taken me 20 plus years, Jordan, to realize this. But, you know, if you focus on what you know, you'll have a competitive advantage. Yeah, I love that. And, uh, you know, one of my other favorite podcasters, Tim Ferriss, talks about this idea mm-hmm. that like, you know, there's what, 8 billion people in the world to be the best at any one thing is is nearly impossible. Right. But if you find two things that you're really, really good at and figure out a way to marry those. Right. You're you're unstoppable. And I think that's exactly what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I'm like 20% away from being unstoppable. Like, uh, <laughs> but I, I need to see that summit ahead of me to keep me motivated. Otherwise, you know, otherwise the view from yeah. the top gets boring. Yeah, but I think also similarly to Rogan, right? Like, that's why I think his show has resonated. Like, he he talks to a very diverse group of people, but all things that he knows deeply and cares very much about, be it comedy, be it MMA, be it, you know, just current events and and what have you. Yeah, I, I think that's, I mean, that's a good point because on one hand, I, when I, in my investment world, I never claimed to be an expert in an industry. Mm-hmm. I was good at investments, at structuring investments. And I think podcasting lends itself to curiosity and a willingness. Like I love having you on, on because I always learn from you, Jordan. And it's funny because like, I could probably just call you and ask you some questions, but for whatever reason, it, it's just awkward or I don't do it. Right. And I'm like, Oh, come on a podcast. Yeah. I can get a lot of questions answered. Uh, I think, I think the main reason is because you're, you're helping others too. It's not, I'm, I'm not the only yeah. one benefiting from your knowledge, but it's that kind of natural curiosity that I, I think makes someone like Joe Rogan or Tim Ferriss, um, or even Freakonomics. I love that podcast. Mm-hmm. Just kind of a, a willingness to say, like, I want to learn more about something. And in 20, 30 minutes, you can get, you know, you're not going to be an expert, but you, you can get a, a pretty in-depth discussion on a topic where you otherwise would not know much about. Yep. Yep. I totally agree. I think it's uh, it's been a great, great tool as an education platform. Um, so yeah, I'm excited that, you know, it's a medium that we've gotten to be a part of. And I think just communication, like uh, we've gotten so text focused. Uh, I remember when I started my career in the early 2000s, I'd wake up and go to, I'd actually have to go to an office then. And there'd be uh, six, seven voicemails. And, and, and not like I was some huge, important person. My boss probably had 20 voicemails. I never had zero. Now I have lots of emails. I have lots of text messages, but I rarely call people. I yeah. do, but, but I, I think like that's how I met you. I remember I had a question about something I was working on and, and I literally cold called you or Pete. I don't remember, but you were both were super cool. And I think um, the, for me, the platform of podcasting is kind of 
de-evolving in a sense where we can actually look at each other. I mean, it would be better if we were in the same room, Jordan. Yeah, you know, I, I think there'd be more like camaraderie, but I, you know, I feel like I know you better than a lot of people I only text with or I only email sure. with, or it's only about a transaction. And and that has its place, but I, I kind of miss phone calls. And at the time I hated it. Like I didn't look forward to getting mm-hmm. 10 voicemails, but that's how you get to know people. And, and I think we need to find that balance of, mm-hmm. uh, of auditory communication more so than just, you know, character-based communication. Yep. I think you're absolutely right. And it's funny you say that, you know, we're, uh, we're working with a new placement agent and that's one of the things that they were uh, mentioning to us last week when we got together, just about, you know, the, um, some of those old school communication types that have that have gone out of favor. Well, actually, from a sales perspective, that can really differentiate yourself, right? If you follow up to someone with a phone call, with a handwritten <laughs> letter, right? Like that's going to really set yourself from the crowd of everyone else who's just, you know, sending a million emails and hoping to get a response. I, I, I can't, I can't agree more. I mean, I mean I, I had an interview on the Matt Balaker podcast. Please like, subscribe, and share. Um, with this, <laughs> oh, did I just say that? This gentleman named Ron Diamond, who is hugely influential in the, the family office world. And I didn't know him before the podcast interview. I mean, I think we had like two email exchanges. And, and I asked him, what is kind of your secret for success? Mm-hmm. He said, uh, after almost every meeting I have, I write a letter, a short letter. It could be as simple as thank you. You know, but he'll, he'll add a little specific note, like, thank you for discussing the beverage opportunity, or I look forward to seeing you next time, you know, I'm in Tennessee or whatever. Uh-huh. And he's been doing that for decades. And I was like, oh my God, I'm an idiot. Like, like it's such a simple thing. And and I've tried to do it some, I, I, I've fallen short, but I mean, maybe now it's a phone call or even an email when everyone texts. It's just, just go like, think 20 years back. How did they communicate? Yeah. And do that. And like your placement agent says, like that can be a competitive yeah. advantage. Totally. So you're saying we shouldn't be sending sub docs over Snapchat. <laughs> I'm saying then followed up with a uh, you know, you don't have to go full calligraphy, Jordan. I mean, you're artistic. I can see you getting away with it, but <laughs> but you know, m- maybe write an email that wasn't composed on chat GPT and, and uh-huh. something that's actually as simple as saying like. Thank you, Jordan, for having me on the podcast, because I, I, I think we all like hearing our name. And, and so something that is specific to the person. And mm-hmm. I, I think um, who said maybe it was Tim Ferriss or you know someone like that. Um, genuine, genu- genuineness. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but honesty is never going to be out of style. Yeah. Like if or sincerity, like, like when I, I I'm sincerely thankful to be on the show, there's no pretense to that. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's, but it's important for me to communicate that to you. And it's important to communicate that to other people who do things that we sincerely appreciate. So I think just recognizing that, and I, sometimes I get in, wi- in arguments with my wife who's much smarter than I am, but like, well, sometimes we'll say like, well, that's his job or that's her job. Maybe. Yeah, that can be 100% true. But if someone delivers pizza, I'm still going to say thank you. You know, I'm not like, well, it's your job to do this. So it should be a completely like, um, 
unhuman interaction, you know, like it's, it was, I broke, I, I broke my shoulder and uh, the nurses took great care of me afterwards. And the doctors took great care of me. I made a point to say, thank you to them. It was their job. They were compensated handsomely for it, but <laughs> I still appreciate it. And I'm kind of an a-hole if I don't show some gratitude. So, so I'm trying to totally. show more gratitude in my life. That's awesome. Uh, and Matt, I can't believe I didn't realize you did stand-up comedy. That's so cool. You, a a uh, lot of people don't realize that. And I think my career would be better if if they did. But that's that's, <laughs> that's for my therapy session, Jordan, not not on this podcast. Uh, no, no, I, yeah, no, I know. I, like... I, I do. And, uh, yeah. and I wrote a book about my favorite comedian, who's unfortunately no longer with us, Greg Giraldo. The book, Greg Giraldo, A Comedian Story, Buy It Fine Retailers or Online Retailers. And awesome. like you don't have to buy it now, but within the next 23 minutes, please buy it. <laughs> yeah. So what what was it that attracted you to stand up and to Greg in particular? Uh, I think being a middle child and, and longing uh, for the approval of strangers is probably what got me into it. If I had, uh, you know, um, if I was a better athlete, I, I think I'd have, you know, a better sense of self-worth as a young person. And that wasn't the case. So, you know, I'm always longing for approval. Um, and I, I think stand-up is, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of joking, but stand-up is something that can never be perfected. There's always an element of danger. Like, I am terrified of the idea of skydiving. Like, that's not, it's just not for me. Like, if it's life or death, I guess I'll do it. But for me, when I started stand-up, it was kind of that thrill. Like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that was my skydiving. That, that was my adrenaline rush. And I realized, yeah, I can get publicly humiliated, but I'm not going to physically break bones. And I can, I could deal with that. Um, I'm just a baby when it comes to broken bones, I guess, but it's that <laughs> idea of you, there's always something to strive for. There's always, uh, and it's a live communication. Like I don't really like online shows. I'm not as into watching comedy on television or, or online, but if I'm at a show and I'm seeing someone who's doing really well, or even I've seen someone who's working out stuff, or if I'm the one working out stuff, I, I like that live connection. I think I think there's there's kind of a speakeasy uh, quality to it, where it's like, oh, we're we're the only ones hearing this now. Now someone's gonna have a cell phone and probably recording you. But I think yeah. at, at the heart of stand up, it, it was like, okay, we're in this room where we can maybe say some things that would get us in trouble outside of this room, but we all realize we're just kind of having fun. Right. But you know, this is an important point you bring up with the cell phones, right? Because I think a lot of comedy, you know. A, you got to work out your stuff. Some sometimes things cross a line that mm -hmm. you know you 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 need to see that feedback from a live audience to understand where the line is sometimes. And I think in the cell phone age, it's made stand up com and the, you know I, I'll call it the kind of woke cancel culture you know era as well. It's made a lot of these jokes more dangerous. You see a lot of comedians that you know won't let people, you know, they make people put those phones in those pouches or whatever. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I'm I mean the the comedy seller in, in New York, which has I think four shows a day, they now have a policy. You basically put a cell phone in a baggie and, and they they number it and they give it back to you. But you know, I, I mean someone can still hide it. It's it's not perfect, but it's kind of it just speaks to what you're saying. It's like, it's taking something that that's kind of insular. It's almost like, you know, you're, you're in a classroom where ideally you can be free to make mistakes and have unpopular opinions, learn from your opinions, or just blow off steam. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunately taking that outside of the room. And it's all, I, I use the analogy like um, restaurants tend to cook for people at the restaurant. 
now it seems like if you extend it to comedy, you 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 have to please people who would never go to that restaurant anyway. Right. And, and and I think that's the function of just social media. It's like people will will glom onto something. Dave Chappelle says there's a really high chance it's out of context. Mm-hmm. And and they may not even be a Dave Chappelle fan, and that's fine. It, you don't have to be. I don't, you know. But then they'll use that to promote their own opinion, mm-hmm. and so in a sense, they're piggybacking off the success of someone else that was creating content that wasn't for them. And, right. and I think that's that's something I'm, I'm I don't like. I, I'm I'm not going to like have a big protest about it. But but I mean, it, I I think it, it's a matter of understanding who is the audience for this. And, and I'll take right. it to cannabis in a way. It's like. If, if you if you don't want to dab if, or if you if you never want to consume the plant i'm not going to make you i never will but like if someone is enjoying it and they're not harming someone else like leave them alone yeah exactly no and it makes me think of uh you know one of my favorite uh teddy roosevelt quotes right it's the credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena whose face <laughs> is marred by dust and sweat and blood who knows the great enthusiasms the great devotions and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best, if he wins, knows the thrills of high achievement, and if he fails, at least fails daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory or defeat. Wow, you're you're just the king of quotes. So when you came on my <laughs> podcast, you you talked about the controlled substance that Teddy Roosevelt. You know what you're talking about. Thank you. <laughs> Well, Matt, man, this has been uh, so much fun. I really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, shooting the shit about cannabis and comedy and uh, all the good stuff going on these days. Thank you. I'm glad all my begging and pleading and and dozens of emails paid off. So you you made you made my my day. Thank you, Jordan. No, honestly, I love what you guys are doing. I love what you're about, and and thank you for letting me be a part of it. Absolutely, Matt. Thanks again, and uh, be in touch here soon. Thank you. Take care, brother. All right. Thank you. Thank you.